Hey, y'all, thanks for tuning in to the Weird One Podcast. This space, it's a collection of talks ranging anywhere from sermons from our ministry, creative thoughts, breakout sessions at things like Weird One Conference, as well as some inside scoops on leadership. We hope it helps you. If you want to keep up to date with everything Weird One, you can go to weareoneyouth.com or follow us on social at WAO Youth. We hope you're blessed. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented quarters, his own rented house, and welcomed all who came to see him. He's chained to a guard for two years in this rented house. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. If I could quickly sum it up as an introduction to this night, without hindrance means that until his dying breath, he made sure that everyone that he could tell would know about the goodness of Jesus and what he had done in his life. The, the thing is, though, if you read the book of Acts, I just, just gave you the last three verses, it doesn't say anything about him dying. It ends where he's chained to the guard. He's there for two years. He preaches the gospel under house arrest. But there's a whole lot of history that we're missing here. A lot of stuff that happened after Acts 28 that's not filled in here in the book of Acts. How did Paul die? What was happening to Christians at this time? Did the brother ever dare to get on a boat again? What happened? There's a, a lot of things I want to string together tonight that's beyond what you would read simply in Acts. You're going to have to take the New Testament letters that were written after Acts, and then historical accounts, and you put it all together, and we can finally have the full story. So what I'm going to do, I'm going I'm to paint a picture, give you a timeline tonight. I'm going to give you seven years on a timeline to help us understand from this point where we finish, seven years after. I'm going to give you the last four years of Paul's life to uh, tie a bow on this thing, finish this up, and I want to bring you back to the origin. Part of our vision this year, uh, this word dangerous, every letter is an acronym. O means origin. I want to bring you back to the origin of where it all started, where it all ended in Acts, but where it all started in ways that I promise you if the church hadn't been the church, we wouldn't be here today as a church. Are you ready? So Holy Spirit, we invite you tonight to speak beyond my notes, beyond what we know, beyond what we think we know. And would you come and bring the word of God to life in our spirit? Would you bring history to life? So that these wouldn't just be facts, but this would be the truth of the word of God that sets somebody free. I pray that those that walked in tonight either having no clue of why they're here, not wanting to be here, wondering what could happen while they're here, I pray that you would bring such a peace over their life tonight. I pray that you'd bring such an excitement in their spirit right now that they're about to be free in the name of Jesus, a freedom that you can't get from being an American, a freedom that you can't get anywhere or any other how, but it can only come 
through Jesus. And so I speak the freedom and the peace of Jesus on everybody under the sound of my voice tonight. We are ready and we are willing, Lord, to hear your word. Change us, change us, transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone says tonight, amen. You ready? You love Jesus? Okay. Let's get it. Hey, turn to somebody next to you and say, hey, I told him I was ready, but I promise, I'm not ready. I'm not, I'm not. If I'm being real, I'm not. I have no idea. So I want to start off with what we know here and help fill in a, a couple things as we get going. We know that the book of Acts, it was written and completed in 63 A.D., we know that. And the reason we know that is because if you're reading the book of Acts, the author included so many specific details. Look at There's people's names like Aristarchus and Tychicus and all of these weird names. He includes people's names. Includes people that were killed, people that were persecuted, Incredible moments like shipwrecks. So many different things are in the book of Acts. Why is that important? That's important because if you would look into history, there's a lot that is missing from the book of Acts. There's a lot of really important details which tells us one thing. That the book was completed before these details happened in history. So we point ourselves immediately to 63 A.D., 63 A.D., the book of Acts is finished, and then everything else we're about to talk about tonight happens afterwards. So we're going to go seven years from this point of 63 A.D. Now, being the final issue of this volume, we're calling it, you just heard the last bit of the book of Acts you're going to hear tonight. I read it up top. It's done now. Because in order to finish out the story, so volume two, we can start the story, you need to know how it actually ends. You're going to have to take New Testament writings that happened after 63 AD. That's what we're going to do. We're going to have to lean into historical accounts of Romans, of Christians, of people that were there, eyewitnesses that took it in, that saw it, and it's been passed down all of history. Google it. The stuff I'm talking about, go Google it. You will find this to be fact, to be truth. Not just one person, not some random Wikipedia page I just came upon, or anybody can write whatever they want on there. But this is proven throughout history, what I have to tell you tonight. Multiple, multiple people would say this same thing based on eyewitnesses. So following the completion of Acts 28, we just read that for two years, Paul is under house arrest. So in this same year, 63 AD, Paul was released from prison. Now, in this case, it was just house arrest, but he was in chains, so we can call it that, I guess. He's released, and it's interesting because the whole reason he went there in the first place is because he said that the Lord appeared to him and said, I have to testify to Caesar. But I looked, y'all. He never did it. Nowhere in Acts does it record he went before Caesar. Nowhere in history does it record that he went before Caesar. 
Actually, he was released from prison before he could ever actually go do it. Okay, so the Lord said he was going to do it. How, how does this all line up here? See, they didn't have enough evidence to convict him. They had to let him go. Which brings us back to last week. He never stood before Caesar. But see, the Lord needed the message to stand before Caesar. So as Paul is chained to all of these different Roman soldiers, as they're hearing the gospel, as he's preaching it, as he's writing the prison letters and they're hearing it, did it go before Caesar? Did those soldiers make their way into the government and have to spread the name of Jesus everywhere they went? Yet Paul never stood before Caesar, but did the message stand before Caesar? I think this is a message for us today, immediately starting off that it's not necessarily where we go, but it's where the message can go because of us. You might never go to a foreign land, but maybe you give to help something in a foreign land. You can send a missionary there to get the message there. You might never reach person XYZ in your school or at your workplace, but you might reach person A that gets to XYZ with the name of Jesus. So I find it interesting that literally you search all of history and he never stood before Caesar, but the message of Jesus makes its way. After Paul left house arrest, there is this debate that many have. Did he go to Spain and possibly England? So where is his journey? Does he make his way to other places? And the reason people talk about this is because in Romans chapter 15, Paul is writing there to the Roman Christians. And he's, he says there, right in Romans 15, he says, I plan to go to Spain. So they assume because he planned to go to Spain that most likely he went to Spain, but we don't know for sure. What I'm trying to bring to you tonight is not speculation. What I'm trying to bring to you tonight is clear thoughts. Are things not only in the scriptures, but in history you can walk away with that I promise you, your history teacher is never going to teach you some of the stuff I'm going to teach you tonight. I promise you no professor, no teacher, nobody is going to give you what I'm going to give you tonight. But it is proven. It is history in this world. So did he go to Spain? Maybe. Probably. Did he go to England? Maybe. Probably. So what can we lean on that we know for sure? According to the historical documents in the New Testament letters, we can place Paul for sure from 63 A.D. after that, for the next two years, we can place him in a couple different vicinities. He first goes to Crete. So if you're wondering, did he get on a boat again? He did. After four shipwrecks, the brother just couldn't stop. He had to get on it again. He makes his way there to Crete because he wanted to be able to meet with a church leader that he had set up by the name of Titus. And we know this to be true not only because of history, but specifically we can point to the scriptures that after Acts 28 and he's released, he writes a letter to a man named Titus. Chapter 1, verse 5. He said, the reason I left you in Crete, because it's setting it up like, I'm coming there, I'm saying what up, but I got to go. But the reason I left you there is so that you might put in order what was left unfinished. They started a project and they didn't finish it with the, with the kingdom of God. And I want you to appoint elders in every town as I direct you. From Crete, he then travels to Ephesus. 
He meets up with Timothy there in Ephesus, and then from Ephesus, he makes his way to Macedonia. Now, it's crazy when you look at, at, at the map and you were to zoom out so far to see how tiny of a place they actually traveled compared to the whole world. But to them, this was the whole world. This was the known world, it was called. This was the entire Roman Empire he had somehow swept over in his time of being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. So here on his fifth missionary journey, he makes his way to Crete, to Ephesus, and then to Macedonia. This is all taking place in 63 AD. How do we know? How do we know he was at these places? How, how do we track it all? You can track it because if you look at when 1 Timothy was written and then you match it up based upon what 1 Timothy says, you can find out where he is. Because Paul, what he'd always do is he would travel forward and then he'd write back. He'd always go to his next destination and he'd write back to his previous one. He wouldn't be like writing them love letters and hand it to it next to him. He would travel forward, reach at people, see them come to know Jesus. People are getting healed. Along the way, he probably got stoned or imprisoned or something. When I said stoned, that's, that, that's confusing uh, in this day and age. I mean with rocks, by the way, just we're on the same page. I just like said that. People are like, ah, oh, cool, Paul. A lot of stuff happened to him. But he'd make sure the gospel would advance, and then he'd make his way from there to the next space that God called him to. When he would get to the next place, he would write to the last place. Either a letter came to him of a problem happening. He's like, hey, this is unfinished. I need to tell them about it. He would in some way make sure that the gospel, even when he wasn't there, was continuing to go forward to them. Can I tell you that those letters that he wrote are what we read in our Bible? In the New Testament, there's 27 books. Many of those letters are what we read and we take in as books like Philemon and books like uh, the Philippians and Ephesians and, and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and all of these different books. They were letters that he wrote. So as he makes his way to Macedonia, he writes back to Timothy, and I want to show you how we know for sure. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. As I urge you when I went into Macedonia, so we know he's there now. Stay there in Ephesus, right into Timothy. Okay, so he was just there, pieces put together. So that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Talking about stuff that doesn't matter, that's not Jesus, he's saying. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So he's released in 63 AD, and for the next two years, he travels preaching the gospel, checking up on churches and strengthening them, making sure that the leaders were equipped and set up to be able to continue leading the church. You've got to imagine here, even Timothy, Timothy was my age. The church at that time, it didn't exist. You didn't just like get to be a youth pastor. It's like, hey, you see all these people? Yeah, I know this whole Jesus thing is new over the earth. Lead them. My age. He's like, hey, just lead this thing. You got it. I got to go. Then he ends up under house arrest. So as soon as he gets out, what does he go do? I got to go check up on Timothy. Is the brother still alive or did the church kill him in the meantime? So he checks up on him. He's like, you need to make sure this stuff is straight. 
These people, they crazy. They preaching false doctrine. They telling you it's this and that. There's some voodoo stuff going on there. There's some new age stuff going on there. That stuff can't exist. This Jesus is by faith. It's not by what you do. Who you become is only based upon who he is. So if you don't have faith in who he is, you can never become who you are supposed to be. So he writes back to him as he's in Macedonia, he writes back to Ephesus. For two years, he travels and does all this. And then in 65 AD, two years later, we don't know exactly where he was at the time this happened. And we don't know exactly what he was doing. Now, my guess, he's preaching the gospel. He ticked off some people. But what we do know is that Paul is arrested again. We know that he's arrested and he's brought to Rome. He just left Rome two years ago. He now is thinking he's traveling. He's he's doing what God wants him to do. And next thing we know, he finds himself arrested, brought back to the place that he just left. All historians, all of them that I have researched and looked up in accordance with biblical text, they would all say the same thing. For sure, did he go to Spain? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know for sure. England? Maybe. But can I tell you what we know? His end of days, it was in Rome. When he came to Rome, this was the end of his story. And that is where we end tonight in this volume. The end of his story, where we stopped last week as he's under house arrest. Can I tell you this time, he wasn't under house arrest. He was in prison this time in the deepest, darkest cell that you could be found. No light of day would shine into this prison cell. If you, if you account the years of Paul's Christian life, 32 years of it, that he followed Jesus till death, 20% of his Christian life was spent in prisons and under house arrest. of all the work that he did to tell people about the goodness of God, salvation in Jesus, 20% of it was spent many times in deep, dark dungeons. When he comes this time back to Rome, it looked very different in 65 AD than it did 63 AD. It had seen some some troubled days. It had weathered a storm, not not physically a storm, but a, a raging conflict in Rome. It's a conflict I want to get into here eventually tonight. Not one of war in Rome, but one when the heart of man can go crooked, what it can do to a family, what it could do to a church, what it could do to a city, what it could do to a world. Think about the dictators we have in this generation in our world with access to nuclear weapons. With the savage heart of one man could do to the entire world. When Paul comes back to Rome, he sees that it's a much darker and dimmer place than it was when he left. The lights had gone out. There was no light left in the heart of Rome. 
It was as if the world had quite literally gone up in flames. See, it all started when he was under house arrest in 63 AD. While he's there under house arrest, there was this conflict that began to happen to a, an abusive degree between the Jews and the Romans. Even at the time of Jesus, when Jesus showed up as the savior of the world, he, the people at that time, the Jews, they couldn't accept him because they're thinking, we have been under bondage for so many years to Rome. We're thinking there's going to be like a soldier, a warrior, somebody that can free us. So when you got this brother riding in on a donkey, they were like, okay, like palm leaves and like that's the story. Like this, this is great, Hosanna. But we were thinking like you may come in with like bazookas or something. I don't know what they had in that day and age, but like we thought riding on a white horse with a sword in your hand, you were going to be our savior in this manner. They didn't understand that this Jesus, the way that he needed to save us, was he had to die on a cross and pay the debt that no one else could pay. So they had known the bondage of Rome for so many years. And here, finally, the Jews have had enough. They're over it. They're sick of being taxed. They're sick of being controlled. They're sick of it. So the, uh, the Jewish zealots, they were called, they were the, the religious radicals. They said, we're, we're done with this. We're not paying taxes anymore. We are going to overthrow Rome. One historical account actually says that a Roman going by a synagogue took a pot of urine and dumped it on this holy place. This was a match that lit the fuse. I mean, they weren't going to stand for this. They began to rebel and revolt. There was riots in the street. But they went from mass confusion to mass organization. They finally had the thought, if we're going to take over this place, we can organize and take over it. Can you imagine the conflict of Christians? Many Jewish Christians, we would call them Messianic Jews, Jews that believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Because Jews don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Judaism worships God the Father, but they leave out God the Son. And can I tell you, you know what you can't live in this life without? God the Holy Spirit. Do you know how you get God the Holy Spirit? Only through God the Son. You don't even get to the Father without Jesus, he said. He said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody even gets to the Father except through me. But see, Jews, they were still living in this day and age where they thought they could sacrifice their way and they could just do good their way to be able to get to heaven and get to the Father. So you have these Jewish Christians. And they're in a conflict, not externally yet, but internally. You ever been there? And you're just like, oh, what do I do? Maybe some of you caught in the middle of divorce with your parents. And who do I go to? And like, if I, if I choose my dad, what it's going to do to my mom? And, and you're just caught. Because that's where they are because they were Jews first, but then they believed in Jesus to be their Messiah. So they became Christians, but they were still Jews by blood. So all of their family members, all of their friends, they're rising up, getting ready to fight. And so they're stuck here between two worlds wondering, do I fight or do I love the way that Jesus taught me to? So you had 
I don't know the exact percentage. We'll just say 50-50 for the case of helping our mind divide it. You have half of them, some of them, that choose to fight for unity, that choose to fight for love, that choose to say, I'm going to fight to be united with what's called us, the church, the body of Christ. And then the other side of them all were abandoning their faith, abandoning following Jesus, going back to the Jewish roots to be with those people to say, I'm going to join a completely different type of fight. We all have some sort of war that's waging within us, don't we? It might not be nuclear in nature with a code and the press of a button, but there is a nuclear war inside of our spirits most of the time. We're all fighting for something. Our thoughts are fighting. We feel like our heart is fighting. Many of us, you're fighting because you truly even want to follow Jesus, but it's a conflict even much like this where you want to follow Jesus, but it's so tough because everybody around you and everything is saying, don't. You want to be unified. You want to follow a way of love. You want to be a person of grace. But our culture is putting a pressure on you that's making it difficult to know which fight to fight. This is the Jewish Christians of this day. This is what they're going through. Because everybody around them is up in arms, ready to take on the fight, but they're struggling to know what to do. Finally, many Christians, a lot of the apostles, John, Philip, a bunch of them, that were in Jerusalem at the time, they sense that war is on the horizon, so they flee out of Jerusalem. They go to places like Ephesus and Parthia and surrounding cities, just anywhere away from Jerusalem. This is all building up, building up. Finally, the, uh, the Jewish rebels, they came to this fort. It's called Fort, the Fortress of Antonia. It was the Roman post in Jerusalem where all of the guards were, all the soldiers were. And they came there, they attacked it, and they killed every soldier. Once that was captured, they had it. They expelled the Romans. They ejected them from Jerusalem. They had taken over their city. But only three and a half years later, a war that their weapons could not handle, a war that they were never made to step into in the first place. And isn't that the issue for us a lot of times is when we fight in our own strength, it's very difficult to win something that God never asked you to even fight for in the first place. I'd even say this further, as a believer in Jesus, the hardest thing is when the world is in an uproar and all about fighting in so many different directions. When we're determining how to do it, how do you do it? How do we do it in a way that honors the Lord, yet we have a different kind of faith we follow because clearly all the examples of the Bible say that our God will fight for us. So let me make it simple here for you. If you have to fight for yourself, and I'm not talking about if like someone's, and I'm going to say something kind of aggressive here to just help you. If someone's trying to rape you or something severe, that you just go, yeah, 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 whatever. I'm not going to fight. That's not what I'm saying. So please don't take me out of context. I'm saying if you live your life to fight for the things you want to fight for, you're probably fighting the wrong fight. Because our battle belongs to the Lord, which means he is the one that fights for us. But can I tell you that there are those that need to be fought for 
where a vote of 210 House Democrats just passed that trying to establish that if a baby is trying to be aborted and it still is born and it's a failed abortion that we will save that baby, we will medically attend to that baby. They just voted no. If that baby is trying to be aborted and that baby still goes through and is born, we leave it to die. What? No medical attention, no help of any kind, we leave it. This is true. This just, this just happened right now in our nation. So let me make it simple for you. If you had a fight for yourself, most likely there's a selfishness in you that's fighting the wrong fight. But there are fights and there are ways to go about it. And I don't got time to clarify all that. So if we want to have another conversation, we can do that later. But there are fights for people that cannot fight for themselves that we have to fight. Fights for the unborn, taking care of and fighting to see orphans, the Bible talks about, and widows and these people that can't fight for themselves, we fight for them. We give to them, we serve them, we're there for them. There are fights that we're supposed to take on, but you gotta know what fight God has called you to. And you see here that this, this war is raging, they take over this fortress, they kill all of them, they capture it, they eject them from the city, but only three and a half years later, three and a half years, the war goes on. And the prophecy that Jesus had spoken comes to pass. In 70 AD, it comes to pass. Luke chapter 19, verses 43 to 44. The days will come. Come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. He's telling this to the, the, to the Jewish disciples. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will leave, and they will not leave one stone on another. Jesus is speaking to them here about their generation seeing this happening. Now, in Bible times, when they spoke about a generation, it was a duration of 40 years was a biblical generation. So follow this. 30 AD, Jesus dies on a cross. He raises from the dead. 36 years later, 66 AD, this war begins between the Jews and the Romans. Three and a half years later, 70 AD, it finishes. So in 40 years from Jesus' death to 70 AD when the war is over. 40 years, a biblical generation, just as Jesus had spoken. This prophecy comes to pass. What's the prophecy? What happened in 70 AD? It was the destruction of Jerusalem, the total destruction. The temple is destroyed. It's rubble. It wasn't just like, if you've seen any war movie, you see that it's not just people that die. It is everything in its path that gets destroyed. Jerusalem is rubble. There's no stone on top of one another. Just as Jesus prophesied would happen in a, in a biblical generation, 40 years later, no stone on top of one another. Jerusalem is up in flames. It's charred. It's burnt to a crisp. 
the fight that they thought they had on lockdown, that they could eject the Romans from their city, take over a fortress, and win, was far out of their grasp now. The apostles are fleeing. Christians are fleeing. Everybody's fleeing. Everyone's either dead, gone, city destroyed. It's done. In 70 AD, this prophecy of Jesus comes to pass. This image, like you would see when you look upon Jerusalem, is a very similar image. In 65 AD, when Paul was arrested and he was brought to Rome, very similar image. A city that looked completely different than the last time that he was there. Because one year previously, 64 AD, it's called in history the fires of Rome. A great fire swept over Rome. Many believe it started in a workshop in what was called the Circus Maximus. The Circus Maximus became what we probably more popularly know as the Colosseum. It was the Colosseum before the Colosseum. It's where they went for their sports events and their bloodshed and the crazy things that the Romans did. And they believe in a workshop that this fire started and it began to sweep over all of Rome. For six days, it was a wildfire. It ran all over the city. It destroyed 70% of the city, historians say. So Paul is coming back on this journey, what he knew in 63 AD. In the meantime that he's been gone preaching the gospel, he comes and he sees total destruction. He sees a city that's been up in flames. He sees a city that's completely broken and annihilated. Not by war, but by fire. It's widely believed that the one to start this fire was Nero himself, Caesar, Emperor Nero. That he started this fire for his own selfish, his own vain, vain intentions to burn down all of Rome for this purpose. He wanted a brand new palace. He wanted to set up a brand new capital there in Rome. And you know what he wanted to call it? Right after himself, Neropolis. Neropolis. More like neurotic is what it is. He began to burn down his entire homeland affecting all the people, everyone there, so he could have in his own selfish intentions what he wanted. Guys, I know that burning 70% of Rome sounds crazy, but some of the things that you allow to pass through your mind that you want, they're just as crazy. Some of our selfish desires, the things that we do in vanity, our insecurities, they're crazy. And I think we could go, well, I didn't burn anything down. But you, I wonder if you had the power, what might you do? I have tried to be so honest with myself this year that I'm so thankful to God that I'm not who I used to be. I'm thankful to God that I'm here but I always flip it up. People always say, like, man, I'm so thankful who I'm becoming and stuff. At least I'm not who I used to be. But I always go, Lord, I'm thankful who 
I'm not who I I'm, that I'm not who I used to be. But Lord, this is who I know you've called me to be. Help me to become that person because I feel like I'm so far off. I, my wife will correct me on something. I always say, I'm sorry. I'll be better at 70. I promise. Stick with me long enough. We can make it. I'll be better. I promise. I will remember to take out the uh, the the garbage. I will remember to put my my plates in the dishwasher. I'll never remember to make my bed. I tried it. I did like an app and everything trying to help me. That lasted like 10 days. I think we have to be honest with all of our, all of our thoughts and the legitimate things that pass through our mind and can get into our heart, the destruction that they could cause. Emperor Nero, this is a man on a power trip. This is a man with full authority to do whatever he wants. It was recorded that while Rome is on fire, he was up in his palace with a lyre, just playing it. It's like a little harp thing. Just playing it and watching Rome burn. The issue was not that Rome was on fire. The issue was not that Nero wanted to have some new palace or anything like that. I mean, technically, he had the power to just be like, hey, you know, like, I'm going to burn it all down. Let's start. He could have gone about it a different way. Like, let's take this down. Let's build it. He had a more devious plan in mind. Because as it's been proven by enough scholars and enough eyewitnesses that he was the one to start the fire, he knew one thing. I cannot be found out. I cannot take the fall for these fires. So what do you need? You need what's called a scapegoat. You need someone else, somebody else, that you can blame whatever happened on so the fingers don't have to be pointed at you. We do this all the time in life. It's called the blame game. He needed somebody to be the scapegoat. But it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just somebody. It was a body of people. It was a body of people that had a name, a name that derived from a name, a people with a simple mission that the whole world would know this name, and people would know them by their love for one another built on this name. So Nero, in lighting all of Rome on fire, he makes sure that Christians become the scapegoat of these fires. They become target number one in history. He makes sure that all of the attention, all of the blame, all the hatred, all the disgust that people could have for a race, for a sect, for a group of people, he makes sure that the attention is on them. And so in order to keep the attention on them and sell it, he begins in history what becomes the greatest of persecutions on planet Earth. It erupts in Rome like the world had never seen from this moment. Christians had cruelties and torture inflicted upon them that in our human minds, I imagine that we cannot even come up with ourselves. We can't design it. We can't imagine it or dream it. We cannot do the things we can't even think to do them what the Romans began to do. But see, listen, just as the Romans had done to Jesus, Romans knew how to torture and Romans knew how to kill. 
Christians, they were arrested and imprisoned. They were brutalized by flogging and whipping. They were crucified just like Jesus. And even fastened to poles, to stakes around it, and they were covered in tar or some kind of kindling. They were placed in public squares and they were burned alive. If you've ever heard of the term Roman candles, Roman candles are something at 4th of July you take where it's this, this stick kind of covered in paper and you can light it and hold it out and it shoots out colored balls of fire. That name for this firework, Roman candles, came from this moment in history where Christians were burned alive, the Roman candles. And they did not denounce their faith, which is why they were burned. They would not denounce their faith, but they willingly, completely, from the feet to the head to over the head, lit on fire, took on the name Roman candles because they would not denounce the name of Jesus. They were willing to take on the name Roman Candles because they were willing to take on the name of Jesus. In this period of history, the brutality is something that movies cannot begin to even mimic. They can't convey truly the insanity of what was happening here in Rome. The crazy mastermind plan of this man Nero, what he started. See, many of the mass killings, if they didn't happen in the public squares, they were done in that Circus Maximus that I talked about, this Colosseum-esque building. Circus Maximus, it was nicknamed Nero's Circus. Where the fire started, most of it was burned now, but what was left, I promise you, that it was used for terror. Christian men, women, children, and even infants were thrown into the circus and they were torn to pieces by wild animals. They were ripped limb from limb apart from their body until finally they were devoured as their blood was shed. They took on the name of Jesus and so they had to take on beatings, murder to a degree that the most psychotic murderers that have ever been thrown into prison or executed could never dream up because they took on the name. Nero was a lunatic. He was crazy. He literally would set up parties, sports events at his own house. And he would invite people in what was called his gardens, like his, his yard at his palace. And he would set up their private crucifixions and burnings as they partied and talked and went along and they laughed as Christians are burned alive and crucified. According to the Roman theologian, Roman, sorry, historian, Tacitus, he watched this horror as a young boy. He would have been about eight to 10 years old as he watched this in Rome. He penned later what he saw between 64 and 68 AD. He said, consequently, 
to get rid of the report, meaning that Nero did all the fires, to get rid of it. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. He said, we all hated them. Romans, we hated Christians. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. In public squares, they were hung up. In private parties, it was done. People would gather at the Circus Maximus and watch mass killings, crucified Christians, burned alive, dogs torn them. You ever seen a, a wild dog, a video of it that hasn't eaten in a while? And would set them loose and let them be torn apart. Tacitus, he concludes, he continues here, he says, hence, even for criminals, he's calling Christians criminals. He's just saying, I don't like them. He's saying, but even for criminals who deserve extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion. It was so bad we couldn't help but feel bad about it. For it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to glut one's man, one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. I want you to imagine what these Christians felt. Watching their family members, watching their friends being torn apart, burned alive, crucified. I want you to think about it for a second yourself. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, a Christian, that you realize that eternal life is worth so much more than this earthly life. So to lose this matters very little compared to lose this. And you're watching. One day, if you're a father or a mother, you're watching your children killed in front of you. You're watching an aunt and her uncle, a cousin. You're watching a brother or sister. You're watching your parents, whatever it is. You're watching them destroyed in front of you for sport, for show, for entertainment, to get some laughs while, while, while you bawl and you weep until you can't anymore, until if you ever had that point where you're crying so hard you feel like you might throw up. This is what Christians went through. This is the origin of the church. Paul writes in Romans chapter 16, he writes uh, personal greetings there. And if you, if you look it up, Romans 16, he just lists name, 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 name. All these people he's greeting, they're in Rome as Christians. Very likely, many of those names did not make it away from this persecution. Very likely, many of those people that Paul personally loved and greeted and prayed for and sent this letter to, hey, I know all these people are together, but tell this and this and this person I said hi. I was thinking of them. I was praying for them. Even though I'm going through some hard stuff, I pray that they're doing well. It is very likely that many of these people did not make it. See, I need you to remember. I need you to remember what Jesus told the disciples. We need to know this. 
Because if we forget this, then we will simply just think, well, what's happening? And is this, this, where's all this coming from in the world? Because I'm not here to simply tell you a story of what was. I'm here to tell you a story of what is and what is coming one day. Unfortunately, here we are as Christians. It's so far from us. And so we start getting comfy. But I'm trying to prepare you. I'm trying to let you know, young person. We throw the best parties this side of the Mississippi. We have some of the most fun you can have. We do some of the craziest things. This room lined it with a bunch of plastic. We all brought cakes and and had Pastor Luke be a DJ. We threw a rave. We called it Cake Rave and threw it at each other. We do weird stuff. We do really fun stuff. We put on our conference here in a little bit. We're over 400 young people show up to go wild in this place for Jesus. But I want you to know that the definition of this ministry and of our Christianity is not those things. It is what we're talking about tonight. Those things, I believe, are a pleasure that God allows us to have. Those things are, are a great thing that the Lord allows us to be a part of. But there may be one day where those things don't exist anymore. So can I tell you, if you're here for those things when they don't exist, what are you here for anymore? If you're not here for the main thing, if it's not Jesus, it's not good friendships. Good friendships come because of Jesus. It's not finding finding some honey sweet. That stuff comes because of Jesus. And I was talking about honey sweet. I'm talking about some of the honeys and the hunkies in the room. It's because of Jesus. That stuff all comes. I found my wife here, not because I was in search for her, It's because I had found Jesus. And then once she found Jesus, I didn't have to search for her. We were already in the same location. Jesus. So many people waste so much of their time trying to find the next thing and discover who am I going to marry and where am I going to... If you're with Jesus, you're right where you need to be. And he will bring you what you need, when you need it, how you need it. He'll take care of you, but it's Jesus. But I want you to understand that what we're talking tonight, what we're talking about tonight, these stories, the truth of not only God's word, but the facts that support the truth, it comes back, it was, it's not a mystery. Jesus said it when he walked with the disciples for three and a half years. He finally told them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. He said, listen, you will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You will be hated by everyone. Governments will hate you simply because you're a Christian. Teachers, professors, coworkers, bosses, neighbors, family members, sports team members, will hate you simply only it's not because of how you look it's not because of how you dress it's not because of how you talk there's nothing wrong with you they will hate you if you take on his name how could jesus say this with such certainty because if he was hated he knows that the only byproduct of that if we take on his name is that we will be hated you ever misjudge somebody you never met them but you knew somebody that knew them and so you didn't like that somebody so you didn't like them 
you never met person A, but you met person B, and person A and person B are best friends, and you don't like person B, there's no way you're liking person A. Jesus said, simply because you take on his name and you follow him, you'll be hated only because of that. It's not because of you specifically, it's because of you through him. This should not shock us. This should not come to a surpri- uh, be a surprise to us. Jesus said we'll be hated. And here in 64 AD with the fires, Nero kicks off. It didn't stop there with, with Nero. He kicked off more than two centuries of Christians being treated this way. More than two centuries of Christians martyred for their faith in ways that we can't comprehend here in this Western culture. For more than two centuries, burned alive. You're sitting there at the dinner table with your family and soldiers come in and they rip your father from the table. They rip your brother or sister from the table and drag them out and you're just sitting in the middle of dinner. Running out after them, stop, no! As they, as they tie them around this pole and you have to watch as they are burned alive as their throat is slit, as whatever they did, whatever brutal act they could think of, this went on for centuries because of what Nero started. But see, I'm not mad at Nero because Jesus already said this was going to happen. Jesus said we would be hated to this day we see it in our culture. We see it with with everything happening with sexuality in the world. I just saw a report. It, It was a hockey player that just said that he would not participate the way they all were. They were wrapping this tape around all this stuff with the rainbow flag, with the LGBTQ night set up, and he would not participate in it because of his faith. We love these people. We're not against people that are struggling with their sexuality. We have no problem with them. But we realize that if we give in to these commands... Just like Rome, we have a world that's trying to control us. And we have to recognize that as the people of God, if we bow to these things, then now we can never lift them up to a place of finally standing on their feet before God and being right and being sinless and having a future and their identity being set straight before God. No longer have to live in fake or behind a mask or pretending to be someone else or thinking they're happy when they're not happy. How how do I know this? Because I know what it's like to live without Jesus as the center of my life, to live in sin. I told myself I was happy. I thought I was happy. It felt like I was happy. But when the day ended, I was discouraged. I was depressed. I felt sick about some of the things that I did. It It isn't until I chose a life of Jesus that I was finally set free. There are pressings that are coming in on our generation. But this started this moment where for over two centuries... They were killed in ways that we cannot imagine. Finally, from 64 AD to 68 AD, Nero personally pushing forward the attacks, it stopped because in 68 AD, he was exiled and he committed suicide. He took his own life. While all this is happening, the war between the Romans and the Jews is going on. The fires of Rome are just taking place. They're trying to rebuild and restore it all. Nero now kills himself. And then Vespasian, the general of the Roman army that Nero had set up to finally be appointed to win the war, he wins the war. So after Nero kills himself, Vespasian becomes Nero's successor. And in 69 AD, he becomes the new emperor. 
But before Nero would be exiled, before he would take his own life, he had one last thing he needed to do. He wanted to send a strong message to the Christian world. A message that met Christians even all over the world that heard about it with such sadness and such terror, it's honestly hard for us to understand unless we've gone through it ourselves. I believe only missionary and missionary families where their loved ones have been imprisoned or things of that nature, only they can relate to what the Christian world at that time went through. When the Christian leader Paul became target number one of Nero, not to just be arrested, but to be killed. Now you have to understand how big of a deal this is because he's a Roman citizen. You didn't target Roman citizens. They protected their own. But the Roman citizenship stopped at the point that he became a Roman Christian. And they stopped looking at him in the same way that they would. As you read the book of Acts, they take care of Roman citizens. They look at it differently. There's a respect there. So here they take Paul. He's been in prison. I want you to just imagine this with me. As he's sitting there. Listen to the screams in the night that he heard outside of his cell. Listen to the horrific sounds that Paul heard sitting there, shackled, able to do nothing, that he heard as his brothers and sisters in the faith, followers of Jesus, are being crucified, shredded by wild animals and burned alive. And he sits in there, can't do anything, can't go anywhere, just has to endure it, covering his ears, I imagine, and yet their screams went beyond what he could contain. And he sits there and he's hearing all this and he begins to write now what becomes another prison letter. While he was two years under house arrest in Rome, in 63 AD, released, he wrote our first set of prison letters to the Philippians and all of them. But now, he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, he said, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. For there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. In 67 AD, 
after he had walked with the Lord for 32 years. He had spread the gospel to the known world. He had planted 10 to 12 churches, raised up leaders at every church, trained up man after man and woman after woman. The Bible says that Paul was led away by the Ostian Road. And see, because he was a Roman citizen, he wasn't treated like the other Christians were that were Jews or any other kind that were thrown into the circus with wild animals or burned alive. Romans were beheaded. And I imagine he thought back. He thought back to all the different people that had come to know Jesus. All the miracles. All the times that he was imprisoned and and shackles. And I even imagine he's reflecting back to Acts chapter 28 when he's under house arrest and he writes the prison letters and he's thinking back about when he wrote to the Philippian church. He said in Philippians 1.21, he said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does that mean? It means if I hold on to this life, I'll lose it. But if I'm willing to lose it, then I gain life in Jesus. Why would I preach this message to you? Why can't we do something lighter? I want to preach it to you for three simple reasons I need you to get in your heart tonight. Number one. The dangerous price that people paid in order for us to be here and be followers of Jesus is higher than you can possibly imagine. Jesus paid on the cross in blood for your forgiveness. But there are many who could not bring you forgiveness, but they were steadfast and because they kept the faith. The gospel made it from that point all the way to us. If they had not kept the faith, it would have stayed there, stopped there, died there. But because they were willing to keep the faith, to fight the good fight, and to finish the race, we find ourselves here still talking about what happened so long ago. Number two, I need you to understand that. Persecution is not as far from us as you would think. Search the news past CNN or or whatever's in front of you on Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is. Get the real stories because there are Christians that are being persecuted and martyred all over the world. Christianity 
is the number one targeted group of people by terrorist groups, organizations, and governments, guaranteed. Persecution is not far from America. Right now, it appears to be subtle. It's where this, at this game, this LGBTQ pride night, to an athlete, wear this, and they won't. It's, uh, we're all going to kneel during the national anthem. It's, it's we're not going to be a nation anymore that values life. It's, it's we're going to legalize marijuana. It, it doesn't sound like it's persecution, but what it is, is it's slowly stripping our voice until we have no voice anymore. and We are completely under control to whatever is just going to happen. Until eventually, the next thing we know, there is a railroad made right here to America for persecutions of every kind that you cannot possibly imagine that will come. All over the world, they will throw tires, tires around Christians, and they will burn the tires and watch them burn alive. Known fact. Beheadings. Known fact. Hangings. Known fact. That is happening right now. That is not something 20 years ago. It's not something 2,000 years ago. It's right here today in the year 2023. Christians are the most persecuted people on planet Earth dying for their faith. But I need you to understand that if you are not willing to be dangerous unto death, you can't be dangerous in this life. What do I mean? I will say it again slower if you didn't catch it because what I meant is what I said. If you will not be dangerous unto death, if you are not willing to lose your life, how can you really gain true life in this life or the next for sure? See, what you're doing is you're hanging on so tight to what you think is yours and you forget that we're just dust. If he takes the breath out of our lungs, we do not have life. So number three, I want to speak to some people in the room tonight that this message is hard for you to grasp. I'd imagine all of us in some way. But specifically, you're not a follower of Jesus or you've not committed your life fully to him or you've never heard a message this deep when it comes to the Bible. I need you to understand the same way that Paul kneeled to be killed. If you truly want to be saved, you have to kneel before Jesus. What do I mean? If you want to have eternal life, the Apostle Paul said this. He said, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. So if you want to live, then some of you tonight, you need to bow your knee and you have to die. Die to your selfish ways. Die to your plans. Die to your, your methods and your schemes and, and your beliefs and what you think is right. Die tonight. Die to it. Be done with it. 
There needs to just be a commitment that sweeps over this place. Whoever's willing to take it, say, I am willing to lose everything in order to gain Jesus. Very simple. Jesus equals everything. You could have all the money. You can have the fame. You, you can have all the possessions. You could have the house. You could have everything that, that TikTok and Instagram and all these things make look so great in our world. And it still amounts to nothing because it all stays here. You can't take any of it with you. Jesus is the only thing you can take with you. I want you to hear this. I can't take my kids with me to heaven. I can't take my wife with me to heaven. They get there on their own between them and Jesus. I only see them again if they make a commitment to follow Jesus. I take nothing with me from this life except Jesus. That's it. So Jesus equals everything. Will you be dangerous unto death? I want you to bow your heads. I want to close your eyes tonight. Maybe another week I'll have a lighter message, but I'm just going to preach what God tells me to preach. And he will bring the increase. He will bring people to salvation. He will bring life change. It's not me. It's him. So if you're here tonight and this message is resounding with you, you have to, for a second, peel back the layers and stop thinking about anything else but the message that just went forth in your relationship with Jesus. Is it there or not? Very simple. Not does your grandma follow God, not does your boyfriend or girlfriend follow God, not the friend that brought you, do they follow God? No. You take nothing with you but Jesus. It's very simple. Jesus said, if you deny me before man, I'll deny you before my father. Which means this. I know this sounds crazy, but it's true. If they denied Jesus when they were about to be burned, and because of that they weren't burned, that means after they died, do you know what the result would be? They would burn. In hell, the Bible is very clear, for all of eternity, you burn. And the flames are not the problem. It's the constant regret of knowing that you denied Jesus. It's the constant thought of why did I deny the only thing that could go with me? So it's simple tonight. Deny Jesus, be denied by Jesus. Acknowledge Jesus, be acknowledged by Jesus. This is not a scare tactic. This is the truth tonight. I am not here to persuade you. I am here to just present to you the gospel. See, the gospel means good news. You're saying, man, I did not hear a lot of good news tonight. Well, then I want to make sure it's clear for you. The good news is that nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus left heaven, his throne with the Father. He came as a baby born to a virgin named Mary. He lived a sinless life. A life that none of us could live. He died a death. In this manner that no one else ever has and none of us could die. 
And with his last breath, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He was placed in a tomb three days later. He erupted from this tomb as the stone rolled away and he walked out. And he conquered death to show that even when death shows you its face, you can still have victory in the midst of it. That if you live for Jesus, you never die, you only ever live. See, in our human nature, we need to help ourselves understand this. So let me make it simple. Paul said this in the book of Romans. He says, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Tonight or later, you will have to face death. You will have to face death by some tragic circumstance that might happen in your life, old age, possibly persecution if it meets us. But also tonight you have the opportunity to die. Die to what you think you know. Die to all the knowledge you think you have and, and, and that you know how to live your life and that you know the right way. And You get to die to yourself tonight so that when you walk out of here, you're dead. You don't got to worry about that person. It is only Jesus now who lives in you. So if you're here tonight, and you know I've resonated with you, you know that God's word is true. You know that what you're living for is not enough, and God has more for you. Put aside what people will think for a second, because that keeps us from great things. Put aside who you're sitting next to, Put aside what people might think at school tomorrow. When you go to work tomorrow, what might be on people's mind if truly you walk in a changed person? I wonder if you were changed, could your workplace be changed because of you? I wonder if you were truly changed, not just living the life you've been living, but living the life that God called you to. Could your school be changed? Could your family be changed? Could your city be changed? But it starts right now. We have to die if we're going to truly live so with heads bowed eyes closed if tonight you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ he's not the Lord and Savior of your life and you need to commit yourself to him maybe you have before maybe in the past you did at one point you grew up in church or something your parents used to take you or whatever and you've gone off track but you know that you are off track and you need to commit yourself to Jesus tonight if that's you keep your heads bowed your eyes closed I want you to get, out your, get off your feet right now. I want you to come and place your knee at the altar. And we're going to kneel just like the Apostle Paul did. And we're going to die to ourselves and commit our life to Jesus. Come on, brother. Best decision of your life, my man. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. not because it's a, it's a special remedy or it just like makes it all work or something. We kneel because I don't know how much lower I can get than on my face. 
It's just humbling myself to say, God, I can't live the way I've been living. I can't live making my own decisions. I can't live what, the way I've been doing everything. I need to change. But I realize in my own strength, I can't change. It's not possible. I've tried. And so, God, I confess that I've sinned, and I need your strength, and I need your grace. I need you to do a work in me. That's what we're saying when we bow our knee. We're saying, God, I need you to do a work in me. If there's anybody else, I'm about to pray in a second. I just want to give you an opportunity. I'm going to pray. I'm going to lead this amazing group to Jesus, but I want to allow you to, to commit to Jesus tonight. Move past your fears, your anxious thoughts, your worries, and what everybody else might be thinking. Nobody's even looking at you. But I promise you, God is right now. And God, thank you. You are pleased with, with these people that are now your family and have come into the body of Christ and the family of God. You are pleased. You love them, Jesus. You died so that they could have life and have it to the fullest, you said. So, Father, we just confess our sin before you. We confess that we've fallen short of your glory and we are in need of you, Jesus. That we can't do anything without you. I just want you, those that are kneeled right now, just in your own words, there's not like a special and specific way you have to do it. Just tell God that you need him. Tell Jesus that you need his forgiveness. It's important. The Bible says that we don't just believe in our hearts, but we have to confess with our mouths. Tell him that you've sinned and you need forgiveness for your sin, that you need to be saved. And it's this simple. Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I want to be saved. I receive what you offer me, eternity with you, eternal life in heaven, because you love me. This is how you just talk to him in simple. I know you love me. I know I'm imperfect. I know I've screwed up. I know I probably will screw up. But that's just where we just come and we bow our knee again. We say, Jesus, forgive me. I know you love me. just want to pray over those that responded tonight. If anybody else, I don't want to leave you out. I'm just going to keep calling as long as people want to keep coming. But I'm just going to pray over you and I'll tell you to pray in your own words because we don't do things out of religion or rituals. There's not like perfect ways, just a perfect God. And so we just come to a perfect God and we just come with honest thoughts, honest confession and a deep need for him. So I'm just going to pray over you here tonight. But you just keep talking to God on your own. Father, I pray for these young people that are putting their trust in Jesus. I pray that tonight would be a mile-marking moment in their life. We believe that moments make movements. And what you are doing in this moment, Lord, is going to change the movement, the momentum, and the trajectory of their life for the rest of their life. Lineages, family lines, children in the future, generations to come are being changed because of this moment. So we confess our sin before you, God. We confess that we have fallen short and we are in need of a Savior. We confess that, God, we've tried it our own way and it hasn't worked. And so tonight, Lord, we come to you and we say that we are in need of grace. We are in need of your hope because many of us have found ourselves here tonight hopeless and in need of Jesus. So, Lord, thank you for the love that you gave us that you shed in blood on the cross to prove it. Thank you for your unending grace for us that no matter how much we screw up, 
if we will just repent of our ways, confess that we need a Savior, then we will be saved. Lord, we admit tonight, as we've fallen short, and as we're in need of a Savior, that we also need your Holy Spirit, that it's a package deal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that when we receive you, Jesus, we then receive your Holy Spirit, and we receive power. And so I just say in the name of Jesus, would you fill, Lord, your people tonight with the Holy Spirit and power so they can live the life that you've called them to live. I thank you, Jesus, that on this night, January 18th, 2023, you are changing hearts. Not only those that responded up front, but those in the room, those online, and those that will watch this later. You are transforming us into your image, not ours, not our identity, not our ways of thinking, not our preferences, but you are transforming us into the image of Jesus. So tonight, God, we give you the glory, and we give you the honor, and we give you the praise. Give us the strength to follow you. Give us the strength led by your Holy Spirit to do what you've asked us to do, to be who you've called us to be, and to live the life that you call us to live. We pray this in the awesome name, the name above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen.